0: what is evidence evidence
1: provides a why behind our plan of care for the best outcomes for a patient elevate our practice to best standards giving the patient the most optimal care that we can is what guides us there's been a lot of growth in our field
2: things are progressing it's different than what we saw 50 years ago
1: welcome to evidence elevates helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy.
0: Welcome to Evidence Elevates. I'm Parm Paget. I'm a member of the Moving Forward Task Force, and I'm excited to be here today with three therapists from the Neuro Specialty Rehab Unit at St. George in Utah. So we're going to start today by talking to Mina Tialino. She's a physical therapist, and I'm just going to let her introduce herself. So, Mina, welcome, and tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: So, I'm Mina, and I've been working at the Neurospecialty Rehab Unit, St. George, Utah, since 2004. A little bit about my background is I am NDT-certified. NeuroIFRA certified and have taken multiple courses as well as advanced courses in PNF. Pretty much my entire practice focuses um, around those approaches.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, and has it has now, not anymore. I'm trying to move forward, <laughs> literally and figuratively.
0: <laughs> Right. Okay. We're going to talk about that. So um, what kinds of patients do you typically see? I typically see patients post-stroke.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I have also seen patients post- spinal cord injury and some TBI, but my most favorite is to see patients post-stroke. Okay.
0: And so you're on an inpatient rehab unit. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, I am. Okay. All right. So um, you already brought it up the some of the changes that you've made to your practice so let's just dive right in there so um you know our whole group this our task force came out of this moving forward paper ha- have you read the paper um when did did you read it how did you how did it come into your world just give us a little background there
2: yeah so even before i read and heard of the paper um, I heard of words such as intensity or high intensity, and this was in 2019. But um, even then, those words didn't speak to me as well. <laughs> then I think not long after that, or maybe it was early 2020, I um, one of our leaders within our Intermountain Healthcare system, Janine Holmberg. She She sent us, she emailed um, our group that that paper moving forward. And if there would be, or if there could have been a fly on the wall to hear the conversations about that paper. (laughs) And it wasn't about thoughts that embraced that paper, but everything that was against that paper, Mm -hmm. mind you. (laughs) 73% 73% of us so 7 out of 11 of our group that includes both the PTs and OTs are um either ifra certified or MDT certified. So we're we're a group that you, I can gently say are are or continue to be entrenched in
0: particular way of practice. Mm-hmm. So that paper didn't sit well with us. Okay. And so and that includes you. Your your first oh, impression yes.
2: <laughs> I confess to all of that. I was, I was right there. <laughs> yeah. okay. But it's when we started to hear about it. But the interesting thing is as you start to hear and you read something and you have conversations and we're pushing certain thoughts that we believe in so strongly, um, you start to begin questioning what you're saying to yourself and what you're hearing in the conversation. So it, that paper, while we, um, while we did not embrace it readily, it also started conversations that um, has led us to where we are.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I'm grateful for the paper.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, I think there, there has to be that thing, right. That, that instigates those conversations. And so, You know, I'm curious, um, you know, what was it? Was there something about the way you were thinking or what you were saying that made you start to rethink or um, was it influenced by somebody else? Like what really kind of started that process in you of like, hmm, like that gave you that moment of pause, I guess.
2: Yeah. So within the paper itself are, uh, let's see. Things like uh, science has evolved. Mm-hmm. That knowledge will evolve. That while we can appreciate what the knowledge at that time did for what we as therapists can do for our patients, it said it's no longer um, a way of practice. It said let's let's embrace that there is, and that and and it's exciting to know. That knowledge has evolved. Thank God. I was thinking about this the other day. You remember, well, there were old phones, <laughs> uh, the mm-hmm. cell phones. They looked like bricks. Right. I was thinking to myself, now these days, we have these really cool looking phones because something has evolved.
3: Mm-hmm. In
2: the healthcare profession, we ought to evolve. Thank God. <laughs> Our work would be boring. Right. So that started that, and then um, later that year in October, 2020, um, Intermount Healthcare uh, put up a, uh, it's a stroke conference that mm-hmm. they do once a year in October, and the keynote speaker was uh, Dr. George Hornby.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think the talk was the removing kid gloves.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then there goes again a talk that challenged as well as resonated with us. Can something like that happen at the same time? Something that challenges and resonates with you? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it kept us thinking about it. Yeah. But that's what that's what that talk did.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I wonder if we started to rethink something or um, think again or open our mind And there's a little bit of uneasiness. So then I can see where a talk or a new idea could challenge your thinking, but also resonate because now all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a minute, that is making sense. And I, and might help you to embrace change or give you direction, I guess, in that change. And it, and it sounds like maybe that's what this removing the kid gloves talk did
2: yeah i also think you know humans we we need to be validated <laughs> and uh what he said in the talk it 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 felt like a it undervalued everything that i as a therapist had 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 done for my patients but it was not the complete way of thinking about it. You know, it was an initial feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you start to think again, well, why are we doing this, you know, as therapists? And it really is so powerful to think about the very people we serve, our patients. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: It is. it is in that, that we can find um, joy, honestly. Mm-hmm. to be uncomfortable and to push ourselves because when we can do that, because I have been uncomfortable by the way, since 2020,
3: Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we've been, you know, to, to not only change practice, but to learn new knowledge, embrace new knowledge. And then at the same time, try to um, get rid of old ways of practice and parm- that's difficult by the way yes
0: yeah of course
2: it almost becomes something about an identity mm-hmm. you know this is this is who we are this is what we've been doing this is what we believed in for so long notice i use the word believe <laughs> and and it drove us you know because just like you said, and I think that many of us do feel that way. Uh, we are here for that purpose to serve our very patients that we care so much about. But mm-hmm. we get lost, you know. We we are humans.
0: Yeah. yeah. We can find our way back through a talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I I want to just unpack your comment there a little bit about the word believe. So I mean, when when you said it, I had a reaction, but I'm curious, like what. When you, and then you pulled our attention to it, but what is it about that word? I think it's a feeling. It's a faith
2: that what I think and what I feel, what I observe all these years is making a difference with my patients, Mm -hmm. but nothing else. Mm -hmm. I maybe have used a outcome measure here and there to challenge myself but I really never had a systematic way or utilized a systematic way of checking in on myself Mm -hmm. that in fact, what I'm doing is actually hard work. It's the kind of work that matters. It's the kind of work that will make a change. Mm -hmm. But because we may be too busy in our belief and needing to validate that what we're doing and what we've done matters, um, it's hard. So then we we learn otherwise, and we start to use outcome measures to check ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thinking the other day, um, if we so, I have a little ten year old um, daughter, and I I was just thinking if I took her to the hospital or I took her to the doctor, and the doctor may say to me, you know, what whatever is going on, but imagine if he said to me, well, Mina we're just going to go with how I feel. (laughs) I've been treating this particular problem a certain way for 30 plus years or, you know, since the 1900s, (laughs) which is what it feels like some of us have practiced since the 1900s. (laughs) You know, then imagine, I mean, I as a parent would never just settle and let someone tell me, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been doing this for so long. I think it works. it, It feels good, looks good. So how do we as therapists Check ourselves for the very people we need to be about and to be most about.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love about what you just said is that that challenging ourselves and and checking ourselves because we know that as humans we are not good estimators or um, evaluators of our own performance. So you started to make these changes, right, in yourself and. Try things with patients, it sounded like. Um, and I'm just curious, how did that change? Like, how did your practice start to change? What kinds of things did you start to do?
2: Oh, wow. Well, for, for foremost, uh, we had to buy a heart rate monitor. <laughs> we started to put one on the patients. And that started to tell me something about what is hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of, again, I, it looks like they're working hard or they feel like they're working hard. So that was the f- the first thing when you've been practicing a certain way for so long, I think some things are in, they become embedded. They're just such a part of us that we may do a practice without knowing. Uh, so, so putting on the heart rate monitor was a big thing for me because w- when I pushed intensity in a patient they looked a little messy they didn't look as neat Um, and that was hard at first because Mm -hmm. I'm used to perfect practice that's Mm -hmm. what I call it I don't know if that's what it really is but Mm -hmm. if there is such a thing but I I thought for some time maybe that's how we learn a motor skill Mm -hmm. (laughs) I may have been wrong yeah So, so uh Perfect practice. It was hard. You know, I'm used to putting my hands to quote, quote, facilitate a movement or facilitate mm-hmm. a component. So I'm used to that. So it was trying to back off with the heavy facilitation. Right. It was trying to back off from my heavy instructive ways. And it was even trying to get myself to use um, assistive devices. Oh, my goodness, assistive devices. That mm-hmm. was. Something to get used to, uh, putting braces on patients so we can get mm-hmm. them moving, get them up on their feet. Uh that that was hard. Sometimes I'll still catch myself, you know. And then I I look over at the heart rate monitor and I see it dropping to 60, 50% of their max heart rate. And I realize, oh, maybe I'm doing <laughs> old practice.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot in what you just said that I think is really important and, and important to pull out. But one of the things that um, I so appreciate is your ability to very quickly, or what, maybe it doesn't feel quick to you, but it doesn't feel
2: quick. Okay. I feel like we're still way behind the times, and we. But you're need- incorporating
0: some. Yes, you're. But you're incorporating some really good principles of motor learning. Like you know, one of the things when I teach, I always try to to um, impart to students or whoever I'm talking to, is that that we learn better if we solve the problem ourselves. It's like if we you know let our patients make some mistakes if they can figure it out and solve whatever motor problem we're giving them themselves they're that they're going to learn it better it's going to they're going to have that feel in their body that kind of like intr- intrinsic sense and and they're going to learn it that skill better right so that allowing some messiness around whatever skill or task you're doing is important it's hard to watch right for you know mm-hmm. kind of for all of us but Yeah. Because
2: my eyes know better. My eyes see that it Mm -hmm. looks terrible. So surely they're learning nothing worthwhile. (laughs) And the words trial and error, those are also funny words to me. Um, Yeah. I just, I, I, I wasn't much for letting my patients trial and error, a movement. Yeah. Ugly and messy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have a colleague and I love um, the way that she talks about it. You know, what she says is we got to get them to move. And then as much as we can, we shape that movement. But if it's ugly, it's ugly, you know, but so there does come a time, I think, when you can start to get people to shape that movement in a way that might be beneficial for them long term, but they're moving. You know, that's the key is that they're moving.
2: Yeah, I thought I would add they're moving and moving perfectly. You know, that's from the, the old background. Right. We got to drop the perfectly. That's all.
0: I know. I'm it's trying hard. to
2: Drop that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do. Okay. So you started with the heart rate monitor and getting people moving and bringing in all these assistive devices. And then what was happening around you? Because obviously yeah. people are noticing these changes and, and how was that going down kind of culturally at, at your rehab unit?
2: After October 2020, after Dr. Hornby's talk, then there was an email to Janine Holmberg, and you know, saying something to her. Um, then there was a, another talk later, a couple months, with a another leader, and I and I said to them, you know, I'm I'm interested in doing something, uh, in doing something with high intensity, and possibly implementing something in our in our particular earth. Um, But it was still quite scary, you know, honestly, to to feel like I'm coming out to my team to say, I'd like to try to implement this given no and knowing where our team has been for so long, Mm -hmm. Uh, then we all took in March of 2021, the walk, the walk course with Institute for knowledge translation. Mm -hmm. So that helped, uh, four OTs and three PTs took Mm -hmm. the course. And that helped us to understand a little bit more about high intensity gate training, which by the way, we like to call high intensity training because it's more inclusive of us PTs and OTs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, and then we learned about how we could also implement it. So we were learning principles. So we started, uh, my coworker and I, Steve. And then later Phil joined us. We started with in services uh, to say to our team, this is what we're learning. This is what we'd like to implement. And then we first started out with some outcome measures, four outcome measures to start to implement that. And then later implementing high-intensity gate training itself, which mm-hmm. by the way, you know, we're still working on. Uh, doing uh, mm-hmm. high intensity training the way it's meant to be. Right now we're doing what uh, we call mix hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's it's a, a lovely mixture of old uh, and uh, high intensity. So the I think because we had initially come together as a PT and OT and presented it to our team and we said to them, you know let's let's us be on the forefront forefront of change um and and then we we had this plan and it seemed that uh, people were willing to try and go along now as i say that i it's uh it hasn't been smooth and easy there mm-hmm. are certainly ongoing transformation there that everyone has to come to on their own mm-hmm. but But people are aware and know high-intensity training. In the later that year of 2021, the rest of our team, the four of us, uh, took the, again, the walk in course. So now all 11 out of 11 of our physical and occupational therapy team have taken the course. So, you know, we have a great foundation, even though, you know, it's just yet another foundation that has brought up more conversations and they are heated and fun, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a mixture conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I'm really needing to learn and practice more is trying to have a dialogue that, that, that helps us to think and rethink or challenge ideas mm-hmm. instead of, you know, I just knock somebody's thought down. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, for me, this has become more of learning how to mentor in a way that helps us have a dialogue. Right. Instead of the other way that I might tend to do at times.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. And it's a skill. It's not, it's, I don't think very many of us come to it naturally. I I do think that there are people that are like naturally inquisitive. And I think that they make really, can make really good mentors because one of the things you want to do when you're talking to people is, is really find out like, like what is driving your thought process in that way. And have, you know, have you considered this other way or, um, and and that's hard. Those are hard conversations to have. They're hard. And they've, I've
2: had to practice and Mm -hmm. I certainly am still in the practice, right? (laughs) I, by no means am very good at this, at Mm -hmm. the whole mentoring business and come along with me, you know, I'm more about, um, get on board.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, get there.
0: Right. So,
2: but uh, yeah, patience is required for change. By the way,
0: yes, yes, and change is hard. It, it's necessary, but it's hard. Absolutely. So, so, Mina, what I'd like to do is, um, you know, we've been sort of talking about how you're, it's been spreading this out to the other uh, clinicians in your practice, and we happen to have a couple. So let's chat with the Wallenfels. So, Steve, welcome. To our conversation here um, about how you guys have been changing your practice. So, and just if you take just a minute to introduce yourself, give us a little bit of your background, that would
1: be great. So, I'm Steve Wollenthalz. I'm an occupational therapist and I've been practicing for about 26 years now. I first went to an NDT course in 1998 and then did several PNF courses throughout the years between that and 2015. In 2015, I went to the NeuroIFRA course, which is a two-week course. And when I when I came back from that, I I did have some, some issues when it came to how fast patients are moving, the quality and the quantity of the movement. Not so much the quality, but more the quantity of the movement. I felt like things were going pretty slow. And I felt like that was probably one of the problems that I've been noticing through all the years that I've been practicing the, you know, the quality-based treatment Mm -hmm. and then something that um, I've been noticing over the time that I've been a therapist is that there's this disconnect between what we do with patients and what patients do with themselves and patients need to really do more on their own than what we need to do with them and so the 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 problem I'm seeing is in two words. And the first word is treatment. Mm-hmm. Treatment denotes is that I'm going to fix a problem and I'm gonna do this thing to you. You're the patient, I'm the therapist, I'm gonna do this thing to you and it's going to fix whatever it is that's going wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think we, we lead the patients down a road of, you know, you're gonna fix me and I just need to wait for that to happen. And when that happens, I'll go about back back to life and
3: mm-hmm. everything
1: will be good again. The second word is training and so it's not called high intensity treatment it's not <laughs> called high intensity care it's called high intensity training mm-hmm. and it's really training is because the patient is very active and they have to own it yeah they own what it is they're doing and when they own what it is they're doing they advance they advance themselves and we coach them through some of that advancement but by and large that in 2020 when i heard that talk i, th- I was starting to think that's the missing piece. That's what I've been looking for all these years is I'm, I'm trying to make this transition from I'm doing this thing to the patient and now I'm doing this thing with the patient and now the patient is doing this thing with themselves. And mm-hmm. that's the training paradigm is where they they develop their skills. Then we, we start to collaborate on those skills and it stops being, I tell you what to do and you do it. Me being the therapist, you being the patient. And now we're collaborating. What can we do to make this work better?
0: Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing from what you're saying, the word that comes to my mind is empowering, is that, you know, you're really there to empower the patient to get better
1: themselves. So to me, that's in the, the, the greatest impact that high intensity training has had upon. And, and I can go into other things, you know, I'm an occupational therapist. Why am I working on mobility? And, um, I've always worked on mobility. I'm, I'm kind of a locomotor junkie myself. Uh-huh. I like to run. I like to hike. I like to rock climb. I do lots of different motor skills that where I'm moving my body through space. And uh, you know, I love it. And, and when I look back on my own skill development, I realize I did the same process. I may have gotten a little bit of instruction with something, but I really was very sloppy at first, ugly, um, Clumsy, but through the practice, through that use dependent learning and that sensory motor adaptation, I refined my skills and I got better at what it is I was trying to work at, whether it is skiing, mm-hmm. rock climbing, running, biking, you know, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that human beings develop in that kind of progression, and therapists can help with instruction, but that instruction is really limited on how much it can help. I think a lot of that that um, practice really needs to occur and that that trial and error, that error augmentation needs to happen on the patient side where they, they go through those um learning sequences to 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 develop those skills.
0: Right. And this is where I think like our skill then comes in is like going back to a word that I was using with Mina is shaping. Like how do we shape that learning so that this you know, the skill that they're trying is like not too hard, but kind of, you know, doable enough that that there's some success. Right. So there's there are those principles that we can use, you know, things like external focus of attention that we know help mm-hmm. people with motor learning. So you've sort of been along this journey with Mina is what it sounds like. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes. And it helps that we talk about this all the time because we live in the same home.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you're, you're, part, you're partners at work and in life. So
1: yeah.
0: so, yeah, I'm sure that the conversations are probably happening all the time.
2: Yeah, when you're trying to make a change, <laughs> we needed to strategize. There were many, many conversations.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you guys have been, you know, kind of in this practice. But you also have another colleague that you brought in who's um, a little bit more recent, um, maybe in practice. And so I would be curious to talk with Phil as well. So we have Phil Lamro with us, also um, an OT that works with Mina and Steve. And so Phil, I'd like to just kind of hear your story a little bit, but why don't you start by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your background.
4: Yeah, thanks, Parm. Uh, I'm Phil Lamoureux. I'm an occupational therapist. I graduated from the University of Utah in 2015, so I've only been practicing for about seven years and uh, have been in the inpatient rehab uh, setting for uh, the last five. Uh, I also um, have focused a lot on, uh, outside of of my full-time work, doing Uh, expert witness stuff in uh, litigation cases and uh, have focused a lot on uh, implementing and really trying to uh, develop and get better at what we call occupational profiles. Uh, But basically it's a outline of an individual's uh, meaningful activities, and they're the things that make them who they are so helps them with their identity. And so um, I've spent a lot of my time focusing on that. And uh, and so, you know, in in really where I came into the picture, uh, I've always looked at both Mina and Steve as my mentors. Uh, When I first came down to St. George, you have to kind of understand St. George or the area of St. George is isolated. And Mm -hmm. so you only have a certain amount of individuals that you could even use as a mentor. And so uh, I got extremely lucky to have so many individuals that were willing to be a mentor and have had a good amount of experience. Um, and when I came down here to, to to St. George and started working at the inpatient rehab, um, they helped lead me uh, in a lot of different uh, interventions and helped me develop my own techniques and skills. And I had a, I was really uh, kind of homegrown, I think that'd be a good way to say it, uh, mm-hmm. homegrown, uh, neuro um, type therapist, uh, where perfect practice, uh, or another way of saying it would be errorless learning, mm-hmm. uh, that type of an approach that made, uh, for the most part, a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I had seen it be, uh, at least from my perspective had seen that be, uh, very effective um, in certain situations. Um, but I'm sure as we'll go into, um, it's hard to really know if what I was seeing was because of what I was doing or if it was because of other things.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So so for you, that errorless learning you said kind of made sense. Does it still make sense? And um, if not, then like well, how did that change come about?
4: Yeah, so one of the pieces that didn't make sense to me, like I, I said, that it it, it kind of made sense, but there was a piece that was always nagging at me, uh, I guess in the back of my mind. But because everybody I was around um, was focusing on this type of uh, errorless learning, uh, except maybe Steve was one that was kind of he was the black sheep a little bit in some ways, <laughs> um, where he was kind of off in the uh, in in you know the corner of the the gym doing something that. You know uh it was requiring uh trial and error and um so i would always look over and you know when i was comparing the people i was working with with the people steve was working with uh, there was always this this difference the problem is, is i didn't really know what that difference was
1: mm-hmm. i
4: i i just could see it mm-hmm. but i couldn't really quantify that and so um in terms of you know do i still believe in that that uh, I guess errorless learning um, as I have started to do outcome measures and trying to quantify what I'm doing and the things that I'm doing with the with my uh, clients or patients that I'm working with, I'm finding that um, my the errorless learning isn't giving me the same outcomes as what i had been experiencing but it's really hard to know 100% if i you know in comparison because i just wasn't doing outcome measures
0: right so how is what you're doing now different
4: yeah um there's a lot of things that are that are different um just it, it's a little bit uh, it's important also to kind of note that uh, In occupational therapy, uh, a lot of what we do as a foundational piece or a foundational, uh, um, I guess, setup for our our interventions is that we focus on what routines an individual is needing to to start doing so that it eventually becomes a habit, so that they can eventually then perform or or, uh, access the roles that they want to they, they want to be so whether that role is a dad whether it's a, a mom uh, a, um, a physical therapist occupational therapist soccer player doesn't matter any of those types of roles that they want to accomplish there's going to be certain uh, certain routines that turn into habits that allow me to participate in that role and what I was really struggling with at that uh, especially early early on and. Uh, especially when Mina and Steve were coming out with all of this, uh, I was having a really tough time with how do I, like what kind of routines am I actually helping this individual do? Because in real life, it's messy. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I try to contain a human being in perfection, they are going to lose their identity.
3: Mm.
4: And I think that's really important to note because if I lose my identity, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And uh, I always saw with Steve's patients during those times, I always saw his patients more so than mine regaining their identity. And it wasn't with a lot of talking. Steve generally isn't a man of many words, but when he speaks, it's very uh, profound, Mm -hmm. but he, he would always help them regain their identities. So when I started seeing those two moving towards this outcome measures and wanting to bring this into our unit, um, I really did have a lot of pushback from, like from myself, Mm -hmm. but as I started to implement the outcome measures, which I now do every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have what we call testing Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So we we implement uh uh outcome measures. Right now I'm actually uh, in the process of trying to utilize the Canadian occupational performance measure. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to go into that. So trying to bring in t- into uh, the outcome measures um a more of a occupational therapy approach mm-hmm. so that I can actually know what my patient is doing instead of just what mm-hmm. I perceive. And so yeah. really, I, I, and again, before Mina and Steve started bringing this in, you know, of course I've been taught in school that I needed to do outcome measures, but I, I just didn't have the time. That's right. that, That's what it came out to be is that I didn't have the time and I didn't see the value in it. It was something that I was going to yeah. do that was just going to then be you know maybe written in a note and then I wasn't going to do anything else with it, and right. uh, we're trying to get to the point where we take what that outcome measure is and then hopefully be able to actually use that and increase and use more of my clinical expertise mm-hmm. or clinical uh, clinical experience to um, to help them. Uh, improve in what we call their occupations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All that is, it's so great. But I want to get back to one, that one point that you talked about that I think is so Mm -hmm. important and and profound and like, like kind of blew my mind about the identity. Huge, right? Like, uh, like, as you were talking about that, I can see those patients, you can see them in your mind's eye, right? Of like, this when you're control trying to control the movement so much, you're you know, and it's so hard for them to do this sort of perfect practice or errorless training, or, um, that they can't, they can't do it right. And you're not giving them access to their own power, you know, their own ability. And then to have Steve in the corner you know trying to hide for everybody else to do it his own way right um is kind of you know i like the picture that you guys are painting it's just it's kind of fun to imagine how things were happening and and you know to see this a little bit messy situation but but that like you said life is messy and that's maybe how we access really who we are is kind of through that mess and i think that 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 is, profound and huge and, and a great sort of aha takeaway piece from this discussion.
4: Well, and just to kind of back that up, you know, we would, there's, there's oftentimes a discussion that happens. uh, I've done it myself uh, many times where a patient will leave our rehab and the individual will have been walking beautifully, you know, mechanics wise. And I see them, maybe another month or two or three, uh, after, and I watch them walking and I sit there and I think that's not how I taught you how to walk Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, um, I'm gonna get a little bit emotional here, but, um, I, 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 uh, there's a part of me that sits there and goes, I didn't actually prepare them Mm. because when I talk to them and I ask them, you know, they go, man, I, I'm just, I'm so excited. I'm doing so well.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And I go, well, no, you're I, I'm not my, I don't actually say this to them, but I, in my head, I'm like, no, you're not, you're not, you're not looking very good. But they mm-hmm. then proceed to talk about how, when they got home and they had to, they had no choice, but they had to figure it out. Right. And They're so proud of themselves that they were able to get walking and get to the toilet and they were able to get into the shower and -hmm. they were able to, you know, then put their own sock on. And I, 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 there's this part of me that like hurts for some of the patients that I've worked with in the past, Mm -hmm. because I feel like, I feel like I was so heavily focused on this errorless learning that when they went home, It's almost like I said, okay, we're going to learn how to swim where you can touch. And we're only going to swim where you can touch. And then as soon as you leave, you're just going to go jump in the deep end. Mm
3: -hmm. And
4: nobody's going to be there to help you. And um, how do I know if they can swim in the deep end? I really don't. Yeah. Because there's so many things that go into that. Not just the mechanics of swimming, but the context, the emotions right. The the support, the the safety, you know, all of those pieces go away. Yeah. And so when somebody goes home, they're they're not able to do that. And so when Mina and Steve really brought in high intensity training, that piece I'd really struggled with just as a clinician. And I'd always say, okay, you're going to be fine. But then I'd see him later and it didn't look like I had in, you know, like they had when they left me. And so when high intensity came and I was like, okay, I'm going to just give you everything. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the, the assist as needed instead of the facilitate. I'm going to give you the assist as needed, and I'm going to challenge you like crazy. So, you know, patients, you know, like this, this happened today, you know, a patient where they said, um, man, I, this, you know, I was, I, I, I was so excited that I did 20, 28 steps. You know, and I, I was, you know, that was like this big, massive thing. And I'm like, oh, well, one of my typical ones is that we're going to go up hundred and 112, you know, like, yeah. because I'm going to push that and I'm going to make it so that they're not holding onto the rail, depending on what they need. But I give them those opportunities to do that. And as that's happened, I see these patients get to where they don't need me. I don't need to be there because right. they figured it out. Yeah. And that is that's just that's the reason why. And and really, what did I do instead of me holding on to the identity and I'm giving you the identity It's that I just get to be the person that says, OK, I'll be your safety net. But let me help you. Let me help you find your identity again. Yeah. Yeah. And if they don't have their identity and this is very OT specific, it goes right into the core of OT. And it's that, you know, what makes us who we are and the Mm -hmm. occupations that we do, Mm -hmm. the the tasks, the activities, it really comes down to our identity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you know, again, both you and Steve are are bringing to mind that word empowering, you know, I mean, I love that analogy of being their support net, I think is like, awesome. But by doing that, you're really empowering your patients to get better.
4: I would rather them fail when I'm here. Yeah. And with me than have them go home and try to fail when there's actually going to be more uh risk of of endangerment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the consequence is bigger, right? You guys are just inspiring and lovely and wonderful to talk to. I just have to say in this you know, it's it's blowing my mind, kind of the, the kinds of introspection and challenge that you've been willing to do in order to, you know, do what is best for your patients based on today's knowledge, you know, what we know today. I'm curious, like, you know, I know you're still kind of working on implementing this high intensity training paradigm, but what are you also continuing to look at other things that are coming out? Do you read journal articles? You know, what, how are you positioning yourselves to continue to grow
2: Yeah. So when we first started to implement high intensity training in March of 2021, we instituted what, like what Phil said was um, testing Tuesday, which is an idea that we got from, Uh, IKT and our and the walk the walk course. Mm -hmm. So one we've established that and and along with that we have established a Tuesday lunch and learn. Mm -hmm. So so initially our Tuesday lunch and learns were every Tuesday because we needed to talk about and the outcome measures we needed to learn about them standardize them. We needed to go over principles of high intensity. You know, there were, so we were starting to use that. So as uh, when, when we initiated. So now the, the hope is our high, our Tuesday lunch and learns will turn into um, where we have people to come speak to us or where we do, we go over articles. You know, we are starting to move in that direction towards thinking um and pushing for evidence based knowledge as mm-hmm. as it continues to evolve. So mm-hmm. yeah, the one of the biggest thing is the Tuesday lunch and learn. And we're going so now it's moved to once a
0: month. And Phil, do you have something to add to that?
4: Yeah, and um I just wanted to say you know in in, in terms of um the development of this, I guess, trying to uh, change or de-implement our, I guess, old way of thinking is that it's really valuable and important to surround yourself with individuals who uh, are willing to support you in that culture. Mm -hmm. And we've been really lucky so far and blessed to have uh, leadership in, uh, Intermountain, uh, healthcare that has been, uh, really supportive of Mm -hmm. our changing and going heavily into evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many meetings, how many things, and I'm not, I haven't even been a part of them all, uh, really Mina and Steve have been a part of so many for the last two years. And, uh, I've just recently been in those meetings and, uh, and not just that, you know, great individuals like you guys, Heather's been fantastic. Um, you know, like there's so many people that have been a part of that that are so I think, eager and willing to support individuals wanting to uh, utilize evidence based practice mm-hmm. and implement it. Um, and they have so many good resources and so much good, so so much knowledge that uh, we just keep trying to surround ourselves with as many of these people as we can so that we can uh, really grow from their strength while we're trying to uh, develop our own that can just live on its own
0: yeah yeah i think that having that support of you know administrators is huge it makes a big difference just in terms of having the time and the bandwidth to do some of this stuff
2: Yeah, Parm, when Phil speaks of mentors and we've had so many from even all over, you know, the country, just even with um, Dr. Hornby, Mm -hmm. I think Steve and I email him so many times with so many questions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I wonder he's going to start charging us (laughs) (laughs) or how many times we have bothered him. Uh was and so we are um so grateful for all of our mentors it's we couldn't there's there's just so much you know to to change yourself to change the world (laughs) to just change your you know so many things to do you we needed the mentors we need the people with the skills and knowledge to guide us
0: yeah. We're, we're yeah. the
2: willing, we're the willing, very, very willing clinicians. You know, we have the desire. We right. just need people to not only support and cheer us, but to give us direction. Yeah. That's important when you're trying to make big changes like this on a right. much scale than yourself.
0: Yeah. And you know, the academy kind of through this task force, but other things too, the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy that's sponsoring all of this work that we're doing right now is developing resources and, um, avenues and uh, for people and, and the support is there, you know, I think it's just a matter of kind of trying to navigate it and find it. And certainly our website, um, will help people. And and that will be in our show notes for people who are listening. Phil, did you have something to add here too?
4: Yeah, sorry. Just wanted to think (laughs) just on, on, you Don't tell, apologize. We, we're we're we here have, to
0: talk to you. <laughs>
4: we have so much to say. Um, just kind of a, a another kind of funny note, but serious as well. Um, so it's important to to realize and remember that whenever you're trying to uh, implement something that is is so uh, close to your own identity or to change something that is so close to your own identity, uh, like it was for us, that uh, it becomes it can become emotional and mm-hmm. personal very quickly. Yeah. Um, and the example really is, and Mina and I have many of these examples, because Mina and Steve were about a year ahead of me. So mm-hmm. they had already started this process, had already had time to to process it and, and come to these conclusions. And I was like, wait, hold on. I really like this. This is really cool. And I want to be a part of this, but I don't know. I don't know how, and I need, how many times Mina, have I had to tell you, I need you to just be a mentor. That's all I need you to do. So don't, don't, don't get, you know, just keep having faith in me because I would not understand what she was telling me. I know there's been many times where in Mina's mind, she's like, are we even on the same page? Like, does this kid even like, is he even in the same ballpark as me? And, uh, you know, and and they laugh, but it's because we've had these conversations. So I think it's important that if you are the one that is leading the implementation in a unit, you have to have patience in Mm -hmm. allowing the person the same thing, the high intensity teaches, allowing that person to struggle and make the mistake yeah and just not have it right, right so many times but then take that opportunity to give as much assistance as needed so that they can start to gain some form of a, a of confidence in that and then from the person who's trying to implement it to not have arrogance or Ego is a word we've brought up, <laughs> yeah. Because, because how many times have I had ego and arrogance, and I'm trying? You know, I'm I'm putting myself out there, right? I mean, this I'm changing my identity for this, right? And here I am. I'm like, man, I I'm, I, you know, I need some validation from my mentor. I'm doing so awesome, and you know, and and it's it's easy to take offense to that. And I think Mina and I have had. Oh, over the course of the last 6 months really last 6 months where we she's really been a, a heavily as my mentor um in implementing high intensity training uh we've probably had probably once a month where mina like wants to run out of the unit out of out of the the inpatient rehab um screaming ex- expletives at me because it's just i'm so far off the mark but then we end up being able to like come back together and and connect and she then is able to give me some of that but sometimes i also need to help her see that like i really want this and i'm not just stupid i'm just trying to figure out how to change my identity in a short amount of time
0: yeah yeah it's tricky and And also like, you know, you, you've been practicing there for five years and practicing for seven and the stuff is like entrenched, you know, it's not, you can't flip a switch.
3: And so,
2: but Parm, I thought, because I flipped a switch that now everyone ought to hurry up up on board with me. And as you see, what he just said was, I may have started something, but I still needed so much mentoring, (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's true for all of us.
2: Right. And yeah, I am not the most patient person, but Mm -hmm. I try.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys, I really just want to thank you so much for being with us and, and being so open and vulnerable and sharing your stories. I think it's been awesome and huge. And, and I'm really excited for our listeners to to hear these stories and um, I encourage our listeners to reach out, we'll have contact information um, with questions and, uh, you know, ideas. And if people are looking for resources, um, reach out to us as a task force. We're certainly there to help folks. Um, And I wanna thank you so much for meeting with me and, and chatting and spending this time. Thank you for the opportunity. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you.
4: Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media, or find our website at neuropt.org. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.